1 Corinthians chapter 2, where we verse 10 through 16. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, cause your face to shine upon us. That you would teach us your statutes. That you would cause us to understand your inspired scriptures. And that you would cultivate in our hearts what we have sung about, which is a longing, a panting for your word and all of your wondrous commands. And that as we grasp hold of that word and understand it with our minds and believe it with our hearts, help us, Lord, to cling to that word and that word alone. That that word may direct our thoughts, our motives, our desires, our attitudes, and our actions in all of our life. That we would live before you holy and godless, peaceable lives all the days of our life. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You might look at the title of this sermon when it hits the website. But it's entitled this morning, I usually don't give the title before I again begin, but it's called Holy Scripture versus, versus Lessing's Big Ugly Ditch. Holy Scripture versus Lessing's Ugly Ditch. I want to put that into context for a moment, because you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Down the street from us, when I was uh, a young boy, where I grew up, there was a very, very large canal, a very large ditch that during the spring and summer months uh, was full of icy cold water which was used to irrigate the local fields and farms around our house. And we would go down there during those months and long to go to the other side of the ditch where the hills were where we normally play when the water was not so freely flowing. But this ditch was so large and the water was so swift that there was no way, humanly speaking, for us to cross that ditch in our own natural capacities. We couldn't swim over the ditch because the water was too cold and swirly. In fact, people often tried during the summer months and it was not uncommon at all to hear of drownings and people dying very regularly during the summer trying to swim across that ditch during the summertime. It was too wide, so we couldn't jump across it. It was really an unbridgeable gap for us. Now, Gotthold Lessig, an 18th century philosopher, took that metaphor of a ditch and he said, that's the problem with coming to know God. That's the problem with coming to know God. Because God is infinite, He is eternal, and we are finite temporal creatures. And therefore, because of this distance, or this this difference in our nature, there is a distance, there is a gap, which cannot be bridged. 
There may be a God who is out there. But we can't access Him here in this earthly realm. We certainly cannot, at least through Holy Scripture. He said that there is no way for us to come to any certain reliable ideas or truths about an infinite, eternal God using the Scriptures, which the church had been using for centuries as the revelation of God's will to His people. He said there's no way that we can do that because Scripture is a historical document written in historical places, by historical persons, and interpreted in history. And the problem with history is that it's all too human. That humans are fallible, that they are temporal, that they get things wrong. And therefore, this Bible is characterized by history and is therefore unreliable. There is no way, he argued, to bridge the gap between the infinite, eternal God and finite, temporal human beings through the means of the Scriptures. There is a gap that cannot be bridged. And of course, if the Scriptures cannot bridge that gap, all we have, the best we have, are human, rational speculations about God. And that was the intent, to lock up and to close up divine revelation so that no one could really know God and that all of us then are basically sovereign interpreters of truth for ourselves. Now, in a sense, that issue lurks behind our passage here. In a sense, that issue lurks behind our passage because uh, Paul has been contrasting, going back to chapter 1, verse 17, uh, these two ways of getting to get to know God. There is the wisdom of the Word, which is human wisdom, which is basically nothing more than human reflection and uh, argumentation about what truth is. And on the other hand, you have the wisdom of the cross, which has been revealed by God. Paul contrasts this more uh, recently in our chapter, in chapter 2, talking about uh, the wisdom of the world versus his wisdom. Well, we jump into the argument here in verse 10, where the Apostle Paul says, there's only one way to know God, and that is through God, because God is the only one capable of revealing divine truth to men. Let's see how this flows out of the context of our passage. Uh, Your translation should have the word for, the beginning of verse 10. It should have the word for. And that means it's looking back to what Paul has said. And what Paul has said in the prior verse is that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and it has not entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, Paul has just said that the eye cannot transmit knowledge of God's truth, the ear cannot apprehend knowledge of God's truth, and the heart cannot see into God's truth. So none of the means or tools of reason can access the divine mind and divine truth. Now, that's his proof statement, or rather, this is his proof for why the rulers of this word uh, world put Christ on the cross. He says in verse 8, uh, the wisdom that he preaches, which is from God, none of the rulers of this age understood. And he said, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He said, there's no way that they would have done this, uh, this, the, this terrible crime of killing the Lord of glory if they had known 
who he was. But he says they didn't have access to it. They didn't understand it. And and that's what verse 9 is trying to prove. It wasn't available to the human mind apart from divine revelation. But now in verse 10 he says, We are not in the same position as the world. He says, For to us, God has revealed them through the Holy Spirit. God has revealed them through the Spirit. He says, we are aware of who Jesus Christ is. We are aware of divine wisdom. We are aware of gospel truths and realities. But he says, the Holy Spirit has revealed them to us. And now Paul gets into his argument for his wisdom, why it's superior, why it's the only wisdom that we can rely on and believe in unto salvation. The only way we can know divine truth is because God has revealed it. Notice this illustration that Paul sets up here in verse 11. He says, uh, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, he says, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. He sets up a principle. He says, like interprets like, or like understands like. He says, only a man has a knowledge of his own thoughts. You may be able to perceive uh, in some measure what I'm thinking by observation, by my conversations with you, by the things that I do and how I act and plan and live my life. But at the end of the day, what the Apostle Paul is saying, which is a truth, axiomatic truth, is that no one knows what I am actually thinking except for me. I'm the only one who has access to my thoughts. And so Paul says, this is the problem. There is no one who has access to God and his thoughts except for God. That's what he does with the even so. He says, even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now there's your ditch. There is God who is eternal and infinite. And what he is saying is that because we are not on the same level of God, we don't have access to him and to his thoughts and to uh, his plans. The only person, he says, who could give us that information about God is God himself. In other words, he's saying that we have to be absolutely reliant upon God to communicate truth to us if we are to ever know the mind of God. It's not possible from people who are standing below to penetrate into the divine mind and find out what God is thinking. Now stop and think about that for a moment. You cannot subject the divine mind to an x-ray machine. You cannot see what is in God's mind using human tools. You cannot use an MRI and put God's mind under an MRI machine and figure out what's in his mind. There is no way for a human to penetrate or to scale the distance of time and eternity to find out what's in his mind. And the Bible repeatedly refers to the superiority, the infinite superiority of God's thoughts over ours. Isaiah 40.13, it's in our passage, Paul quotes it. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Isaiah 55.8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts... Then your thoughts. 
Romans 11.33, Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. The, the scriptures affirm some, so many different places and so many different angles that God's mind is absolutely entirely off limits to us. We cannot access his mind. The only way that God, uh, only way we can know God is through him. Revealing the truth. And that's what Paul goes on to argue here now in verse 11. He says, even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. That word except is a huge word. No one knows God's thought except His Spirit. And why does His Spirit know? Or why does the Spirit know? Well, Paul tells us. Because the Spirit is searching the deep things of God. The Spirit is, uh, is investigating and, and, and searching and uh, understanding all that's on God's mind. And so the Apostle Paul says, this is the only way we can know that. Is if the Spirit reveals to us God's thoughts. This is very similar to what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus had been taking his uh, disciples on an extensive uh, ministry missions and for a moment he takes them to the side somewhere to the mountains where he has a chance to enjoy some downtime with them and to talk with them about what's been going on in their preaching and he asks them he says uh, well who do people say that I am who do people say that I am and uh, some said well some think that you're Elijah some think you're John the Baptist some people think that you're Jeremiah some think you're one of the prophets who's come back from the dead and uh, uh, Jesus says, okay, well, who do you think that I am? And Peter answers and he says, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus responds, stopping Peter right there and says, flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my spirit, my Father in heaven. That's exactly what Paul is arguing here, is that the only way to know who Jesus is and the way of salvation and God's mind about redemptive truths and reality is if God alone reveals them to us, and there's no other way. So, Paul first begins for arguing the superiority of his wisdom uh, by explaining that only God is able to teach us what is on God's mind. But now, in verse 12, he takes the argument in just a little bit different direction. He says only God is able to help us know divine truth when it is revealed. Look at verse 12. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. Here the Apostle Paul says, It's one thing for God to have revealed His mind. It's another thing for us after it's been revealed to know what it's saying. And he sets up a contrast. He says, We have not received the Spirit of this world. And uh, really all that Paul is saying is, yeah, we do have that spirit, but he's trying to accent the privilege which helps us not only access but know divine truth. He says, we have been given the spirit who is from God. In other words, he is saying that God in his sovereignty has not only taken the initiative to reveal, but God in his sovereignty now has set his spirit within our hearts. So that our hearts are changed, that we have new attitudes, new desires, new abilities to perceive divine truth. This, he says, God has done. He's taken the initiative to give His Spirit 
so that we would be subject to his influences and his instruction. And now notice the reason why he says that we have been given this spirit. He says, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Why has he given us this spirit? Well, he says the reason why is so that we may understand God's truth. And what he is implying here is it's absolutely impossible, even after we have received God's communication of his mind to us, it's absolutely impossible for us to know what it means. We are not equipped with the capacity or the ability to understand or comprehend divine eternal truth. And so he says here that the way this big ditch is bridged is first of all God communicating taking the initiative to communicate his truth but then second of all God has to take that truth and frame and fit our minds to be able to receive it he's saying people of God we are not able we don't have the capacity as creatures to understand the divine mind unless God opens our minds to understand it Very similar to what Paul has argued in Ephesians chapter 1. He doesn't really argue it there. He simply discloses his prayer for the saints. Ephesians 1.18. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Paul says. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul saying, here is my prayer life for you. As your pastor, here is what I pray for. And I pray that your eyes would be enlightened, the eyes of your heart. It's a poetic way of describing uh, the mental part of our brain which receives truth and processes it and understands it. And Paul says, I pray that that faculty of your being is enlightened. So that you would know what? Gospel truth. The hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, uh, of his inheritance among the saints, and the surpassing greatness of God's power to us who believe. Paul is saying you cannot understand redemptive truths which are from God's mind unless God opens your mind. You know, trying to understand the Bible without the help of the Holy Spirit is like a person trying to read a book in pitch black dark. You can have all the information uh, in the world at your fingertips and you will never be able to access it or understand it unless the lights are turned on. Paul says that's exactly what it's like to read the Bible. You can't understand these scriptures. You can't grasp hold of the divine message of salvation without the help of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say that people can't read it and put the words and the sentences together and give a basic idea of what's being said here. It's just that they can't embrace it with their heart. They cannot rest in it as true unless the Holy Spirit opens the mind. Now Paul takes this argument a step further in verse 14. Notice what he says there. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Let's begin with the word natural man. It's simply a reference to unregenerate nature. It's fallen, sinful, depraved human nature. Someone who does not have the Spirit of God. Someone who is not regenerate. And what does he say about that kind of a person? He says, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He does not accept them. Basically, it means he rejects them. If you turn it inside out, that's what he's saying. He rejects 
the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Well, Paul gives us three reasons. First of all, he says they are foolishness. They are foolishness. The spiritual things that are unfolded and revealed in the world word are foolishness to people who are of the world. When they hear this idea of guilt, when they hear this idea of sinfulness, when they hear this idea of the need for forgiveness, when they hear this idea of needing a righteousness which is outside of themselves and redemption and a Savior who will come and die in their place, they hear that kind of a message and they think that it's utterly irrelevant. It's empty of anything practical and real and substantive that they can use. And they hear this kind of a message and they think it's, it's mythological, that it's primitive. They want something more sophisticated. They want higher truths, deeper consciousness. They want to dive into the depths of their own being and discover some inner light and truth for themselves. They want to grasp hold of paradox and contradiction and, and, uh, and wax poetic and philosophical about things that they don't understand. And when they don't understand it, they say, Oh, how ineffable that is! What a more rich and complex and deep truth than this message of a crucified Savior. They have nothing but contempt and scorn for this message because they think that it's foolish. It's more than foolish, though, he says. They cannot understand it. You know, in the original here is one of the most... In fact, it is the most powerful way you can state a negative in the Greek language. I want us to see here, though, what Paul is saying. He doesn't say that they don't want to. He doesn't say that they will not. He takes those options off the table. He takes free choice off the table. He doesn't say they won't make the decision to, or they refuse to allow themselves to be persuaded into something. He doesn't say that. He says they can not understand them. That's why they think it's foolish. That's why they reject the message to their peril. They cannot understand it. Why? Because he says in the last part of verse 14, they're spiritually appraised. They're spiritually understood. Spiritually understood. By the Holy Spirit's means, they are understood and appraised and evaluated as true and right and trustworthy. They cannot understand. They believe they are foolish because only the Holy Spirit can take divine truth that is revealed to the human mind, illuminate it so that we can understand it. It takes a lot of frustration, by the way, out of witnessing to people, doesn't it? It takes a lot of the frustration out of witnessing to people. Because our job is not to grab them by the collar and say, Listen here, you need to get this truth. It also relieves us of the responsibility of running around trying to figure out every single group of people, dig into their past, dig into their idea, uh, identity, dig into their uh, racial, cultural, sociological, economic background and say, somewhere in the mix of all of this stuff is the key to opening their hearts so that they'll accept the message. 
It's a big movement out there today to figure out how to accommodate the gospel to people who've never heard it before. And one of the things that supposedly we're supposed to do is so dive into their sociology and their uh, cultural and intellectual makeup that we will discover some code word to how to communicate the truth to them. Well, Paul says they don't get it because they cannot get it because the Spirit is the only one who teaches the truth. So it's not about their environment. People don't reject Christianity because they came from an environment that is hostile. You know, people don't reject the gospel around us because they're just too caught up in the hustle and bustle of life. They don't reject the gospel because on Sunday mornings there are just too many options for them. Maybe go to Disneyland. Maybe go play some golf. Maybe go to the beach. You see, the environment is just preventing them from understanding. If we could just get them out of here and, and, and take them out to the countryside, 40 miles away from the middle of nowhere, no power, no electricity, we just sit them down. We just say, we want you to just think. Open up your mind and somehow you'll embrace the truth. People don't reject the truth because of their experiences. You hear this all the time. Well, they could never, they could never uh, embrace the gospel because of the home which they grew up in. They had a really bad home life. And see, that bad home life is the reason why they, can't just, they, they just can't get this truth. Uh, their father was not like God the Father in heaven. Their father was abusive and he was a drunk and he beat on him and he was a terrible father. And so when they hear this message of a divine, compassionate, loving, gracious, heavenly father, they, they go, please, I don't want to know anything about a father. I wish it was a mother maybe I could relate to. A divine mother that might be nurturing and kind to me. And by the way, that's one of the options that people give. Well, if they can't think about father, let's change it to mother. And let's bring in all the nuances and associations that we may fill up in the concept of motherhood. That's kind and warm and nurturing. But see, that's another reason given why people can't believe the truth. is because they had a bad home life. They had a bad experience. So they can't, they can't possibly get their mind around the truth. Another reason given why people don't accept the church is because church is boring. They don't accept the truth because church is boring. And so the key to overcoming the boringness, which is the obstacle to understanding the Christian message, is that we spice up church. We make it funny, we make it light, we make it humorous. We, uh, we figure out how the people are thinking so that we have street cred in the way we talk to people. That's the key. Come back to the passage. Paul says the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolish and he cannot understand them. Remember now, we're trying to bridge this ditch between an infinite and eternal God and finite temporal people. How do we get over there and find out what God is thinking? How do we access the truth? Well, Paul says it's not about you. It's not about your personal journey. It's not about you uh, determining to set out and strike a course which finds God. Paul says, no, God is the only one able to communicate His mind to you because only light reveals light. So God must take the initiative. And second of all, even after God takes the initiative, it's not that He now meets you halfway. It's not as if he says, well, I took my steps towards you, now you take your steps towards me. 
though Paul says, secondly, that in order for us to have that gap bridge, not only does God have to bring truth down to us, but when He brings it down to us, He has to open the mind. Or we will never get it. But then thirdly now, Paul says, it's not just that God takes the initiative, it's not just that God illumines the truth. It's thirdly, that God inspires the very words so that we can receive His communication and have it explained and taught to us. Look at verse 13. He says, Which things we also speak? Which? Which refers back to verse 12, where Paul says, or refers to, the things that are freely given to us by God. Those freely given to us things by God, Paul says, are the things that he speaks. He's referring to divine revelation. He's referring to divine revelation. He says, which things we are speaking. Now, how does Paul take those words, which God has taken the initiative to reveal to his mind, him and the apostles and prophets, how does he do that? Well, God illumines the mind, but now here's what else God does to bridge the gap. He says, which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. He says, not human wisdom. Again, this goes back to the contrast Paul has been working with now. He's been saying to these Corinthians who are enamored with worldly wisdom, human ways of thinking, he's, he's been saying that doesn't work. And, and now he says, you can't now use, say, oh, okay, well, God has revealed and God has illumined and now I'm just going to use my own words. Just, I'm just going to mix it up with my own ideas and words. And I mean, No, he says, you can't do that. Even now, you still cannot know the divine mind unless... God gives words which are taught by the Spirit so that the truth can be communicated. In a sense, this gives us an image of our own weakness and incapacity, doesn't it? This is not a very nobling view of man who is a self-enlightened person who if you give him truth, he'll figure it out. He'll put the pieces together. He, you know, uh, he, he'll, he'll get it. No, he's still saying, we still don't get it until God takes those thoughts and breaks them down into words. And the Spirit is the one who has to do that. There couldn't be a more clear passage to my mind than the doctrine of verbal inspiration of the Scriptures, which is the foundation of our faith, sola scriptura is that God must not only communicate Himself, the concepts and the ideas and the revelations, the things that are tucked away in His eternal divine mind, but He has to put them in words and inspire those words so that we can understand the truth that is in His mind. Very similar to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture, you could literally interpret that every Scripture, every Old Testament book. And that's what Paul is referring to here. Because the New Testament canon had not been shaped and put together yet. 
He says, every scripture has been inspired by God. And since there is every word, every syllable, every phrase, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, every book, it's all been inspired by God. With words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. God bridges the gap. Think about these for our application this morning. First of all, this passage, I believe, is one of the most comprehensive, sets forth one of the most comprehensive doctrines of Scripture that we can find anywhere in the entire Bible. Think of those rich statements of Scripture which uh, reveal the perfections in the nature of the Bible to us. I think it's Psalm 12, verse 6, which says, The words of the Lord are pure words, refined seven times as silver is refined in fire. Psalm 19, which says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, as he leaves the Ephesian church, says to the elders there, he says, I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Imagine that. doesn't leave them with his ideas. He doesn't leave them with fond memories. He doesn't leave them a a coffee cup with uh, spiritual thoughts on it. He says, I commend you to the word of God and to his grace which is able to build you up. The word which is able to not only build you up, but to give you a place in God's eternal inheritance. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What makes those passages believable? The world is full of religions and full of religions with holy books which say all kinds of things about those holy books. But ask yourself the question, which book bridges the gap? Which books bridge the gap? Somehow we have to get across that enormous ugly ditch Paul says the only way to get across that ditch is if God takes the initiative to disclose his mind, that God takes the initiative to illuminate the mind, and if God takes the initiative by the Spirit to give us every word which breaks down this revelation of his mind. That's the only way that those passages which I just read and many, many others you can think of make any sense and are real and true and reliable and can be believed on and your life can be, you can stake your life on those promises. It's only because God is the one who stood behind that process of revelation and every single step of the way guided that revelation to us. God has been in control of the revelation process of communicating Himself to man at every single point to ensure that at no point 
Does the Word of God fall into that yawning gap between man and God? Nothing that we needed to know about God fell through the cracks. The truth, Paul says, is given in God's Word. And if that's the case, then we must cling to this Word. If that's the case, then we must cling to this Word and this Word only. The only place is in the Bible where you have access to God's mind, to God's plan, to God's way. That's it. There's no other place you can turn. Struck again by this truth, and it, it was helpful. A debate that I had uh, been listening to last week between uh, a guru, philosopher, scientist named Deepak Chopra and some Christians. And as I listened to the debate, one thing that struck me was the way that him and people like him talk about God and truth. In the course of the debate, it was said that, uh, you know, the Bible is, is really man's inspired reflection upon God. Did you catch that? It's man's, not God's inspired. It's man's inspired reflection upon God. Oh, we don't want to diminish the the significance and the importance of the Word. No, it's man's inspired reflection. It's really uh, tremendously helpful. It's it's deep and it's rich and it's nuanced and it's complex. It's it's man's highest abilities to think about God. But that's that's all the Bible is at the end of the day. They also indicated that truth is what we know by experience. The only truth we know is truth we experience. That our own perception of reality is ultimate reality for us, but not ultimate truth for all. As I listened to all that, I thought about this problem. As I thought about Lessing's ditch, it struck me. There really are only two ways to bridge that gap. There's the way that Paul reveals here that a sovereign God takes sovereign initiative, communicates what's in his mind, illuminates what he communicates, and then gives the very words so that they can be communicated to others. Or you have man bridging the gap himself. There's only two ways. Either God gives us the ladder, climbs down the ladder, gives us the ideas and the words, or we construct our ladder to try to bridge the gap between uh, finite temporal circumstances and eternity and tell God what we think. Not what He thinks, what we think. And then demand that He accepts what we think. But at the end of the day, all those people, if they're honest, admit they don't really believe that either. That's why they say that truth is really what you experience. And put the you in bold capital letters. It's just what you think it is. 
Why would they say it like that? Well, I think in a moment of honesty, they realize the fact that God is so enormous that the best, the absolute best that any man could do is just grasp a little teeny tiny corner on the truth. And that could not be comprehensive truth. It could not be exhaustive truth. And so they're even honest enough to admit that that teeny tiny little corner of the truth that they think they might have grasped all them is certainly not enough to be absolute truth for everybody because it's just too small the truth. And so they throw their hands up in the air and they say, well, no one can know God did. He's in a box. All of us have to be in blindness and ignorance. That's what Paul is contradicting. The sophistry, the wisdom of the academic intellectuals and the elites in Corinth were basically saying the same thing. There is no truth that is able to be accessed by the human mind. It's only my truth. And Paul says no. Paul says no. There is truth. We do have God's truth. We have God's wisdom. We have what God is thinking in His mind about our redemption. And He says it's in the Bible. People got our confidence this morning is not in ourselves. It's in God. Who's revealed the truth, illumined the truth, and given the very words to communicate the truth. He has not taken any shortcuts Think about that. God has not taken a single shortcut in bridging the gap. He revealed it, illumined it, and gave the words to communicate it. He has bridged the gap, and the bridge is His Word. People of God, our response to that is with grace and humility. To stay on that bridge. To follow that bridge. To walk that bridge by His grace. So that we may lay hold of that absolute, eternal, powerful, saving truth. And as we do that by God's grace, we not only have truth, but we have eternal salvation when we rest upon that truth which is in Jesus Christ in that alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, you have taken the sovereign initiative. We thank you that you have taken the sovereign initiative to come down to us, to to condescend to us, to scale that enormous gap that was just too impossible for us as creatures to do. We thank you this morning that you have communicated truth to us. We ask, Father, that you would make us submissive and reverent and humble and teachable. That you would, by your Spirit, enlarge our hearts and minds to understand it and then to rest in it with our whole heart as our only hope. Do this work, we pray, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.